Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of death in the United States and worldwide, with a primary risk factor being elevated cholesterol levels. Dyslipidemia is commonly managed by statin therapy, but there are several non-statin medications that should be considered as adjunct therapy, especially when further reduction in LDL cholesterol is needed. Let's listen in as Dr. Hannah Poppin, a pharmacist at Mayo Clinic Health System, describes the role of non-statin therapy in cholesterol management in order to prevent major cardiovascular events. In the United States, it is estimated that one in every four deaths is due to cardiovascular disease. Elevated blood cholesterol is one of the primary risk factors in developing this potentially fatal disease. Most commonly, statin medications are used to lower cholesterol levels. However, oftentimes additional non-statin therapy may be necessary to further reduce risk of morbidity and mortality. So, how low should LDL go? This presentation will answer this question as I discuss the role of non-statin therapy in the management of blood cholesterol. I will begin by reviewing the recommendations for managing cholesterol based on the 2018 American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association Society guidelines. Next, I will discuss the proposed benefits and potential risks associated with adjunct non-statin therapy. And lastly, I hope that by the end of this presentation, you will be able to identify patient-specific characteristics in which PCSK9 inhibitor therapy should be considered. Cardiovascular disease is not only the leading cause of death in the United States, but also worldwide. It is estimated that about 647,000 Americans die each year. Cardiovascular disease really encompasses many different conditions, the most common being coronary artery disease, um, which affects blood flow to the heart. So this can include angina or in more severe cases, myocardial infarction. Blood flow to the brain can also be affected, leading to stroke, and other conditions include heart failure and arrhythmias. There are many different risk factors that can lead to cardiovascular disease. Um, including diabetes, obesity, an unhealthy diet, physical inactivity, and excessive alcohol intake. However, the three primary risk factors for developing cardiovascular disease are smoking, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. Despite its bad rep, cholesterol is actually required for good health. It is a structural component of cells, and it's a precursor in synthesizing hormones. It also plays a role in bile acid production, um, and this is required for fat absorption. Although we often think that cholesterol is obtained through our diet, it is, but the majority is produced by the liver. And from the liver, it gets transported to the bloodstream, but it cannot be dissolved here. It must exit the body via bile acid or as free cholesterol. This transportation is made possible by the protein carrier of the lipoprotein. As the name implies, um, lipoproteins contain lipid and a protein carrier. 
the ratio of those two determines how cholesterol is classified by density. In dyslipidemia, also known as hyperlipidemia, um, oftentimes there is an elevation in total cholesterol and low density lipoprotein, or LDL, and triglycerides. There's often a reduction in high density lipoprotein, or HDL. Now, LDL is what we consider to be the bad cholesterol. This is the cholesterol that begins to build up in the arteries as fatty deposits, known as plaque. And on the other hand, we have HDL, which we consider to be the good cholesterol, as the higher protein content of HDL is actually able to do kind of the heavy-duty work of removing that excess LDL from the arteries. So the buildup of plaque uh, caused by elevated levels of LDL does lead to narrowing of the arteries, termed atherosclerosis. As you can see from the image, the more plaque that builds up, the more blood flow will be affected. So understanding the mechanism of how LDL and HDL play a role in the development of cardiovascular disease is why it's important to check a lipid panel. And as important as checking a lipid panel is, it really is only one piece of the puzzle when considering cholesterol management. So um, as we know, cardiovascular disease is really multifactorial, so um, we need to consider everything that may potentially lead to it, including inherited conditions such as familial hypercholesterolemia, also, if patients already have a history of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD, um, if they have any presence of other risk factors, um, especially diagnosis of diabetes, and lastly, we do consider age as well. So as we grow older, there is a higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease, but additionally, uh, the, the goal of cholesterol management is really that long-term benefit. So taking into account um, life expectancy and other comorbidities may influence your decision um, when starting cholesterol management. So here's a simplified stepwise approach when determining an individual's risk of um, developing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Step one, um, has this patient already had some type of event? So this would include um, acute coronary syndrome, myocardial infarction, angina or stroke, um, also peripheral arterial disease. So it's intuitive to conclude that this patient population would be at an increased risk of having another type of event, and this would be considered secondary prevention. Step two, um, if they have never had uh, any sort of atherosclerotic cardiovascular event, it is considered primary prevention. Um, and another patient population at high risk is when LDL levels are greater than 190 at baseline. This may or may not be due to a diagnosis of, hyper, of familial hypercholesterolemia. Step three is determining if the individual does have diabetes. Um, so the diabetes, one of the major macrovascular complications is going to be cardi cardiovascular disease. So just knowing the progressive nature of this disease, it's um, intuitive to conclude that they would be at a high risk. 
And step four would be risk stratification, which can be estimated by a calculator. Um, this is in, endorsed by the American Car College of Cardiology, and it takes into account several different factors. So this calculator basically estimates um, an individual's risk of developing some sort of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease within the next 10 years. Um, this takes into account age, sex, race, blood pressure, cholesterol levels, and also smoking status. And then based on which percentage, um, you can classify the individual. So 5% or less would be considered low risk, all the way up to more than 20%, and this would be considered high risk. So this calculator can be really helpful in determining if cholesterol management really is necessary. So here is a visual that's adapted from the 2018 guidelines, and it displays recommendations for primary prevention, meaning specifically for patients who have not yet had any type of event. And depending on certain patient-specific factors, including baseline LDL, um, age, and if there is a diabetes diagnosis, um, you can see which um, intensity of statin therapy would be indicated. And I'm sure that many of us would like this decision-making to be black and white all the time. However, we do know that in practice there's a lot of gray area, so um, that's when you really need to take into account some clinical judgment. So let's go back to this stepwise approach. Um, say you've made it through step four and your patient is classified as either borderline to intermediate risk. Um, if they're reluctant to start statin therapy or if they're just really not sure if they want to proceed, um, you can consider an additional step and that would be the measurement of coronary artery calcium. So this is a measurement of calcium in the artery walls. So the presence of calcium is an indicator that plaque is building up. So as you can see from the image to the right, um, the more plaque that builds up, the more calcium will also be building up. So this um, score measurement, which is done by imaging, um, is especially helpful if that decision is uncertain. Also, if patients are reluctant to start statin therapy. Um, if there is a score of zero, it, it would be reasonable to withhold statin therapy in the majority of patients. Um, a score between 1 to 99, statin therapy would be favored, and a score of 100 or greater, you definitely would want to initiate statin therapy. So after determining that a patient would benefit from pharmacotherapy, the first step is starting some type of statin. So statins are very effective in lowering cholesterol and have been found to significantly reduce the risk of developing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So for this reason, they are considered first-line therapy. These agents are HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, um, which uh, targets the rate-limiting step of cholesterol biosynthesis in the liver. So by blocking HMG-CoA reductase, there is a decreased form, forming of mevalonic acid, which then um, forms into cholesterol. 
And although statins are notorious for causing um, a lot of side effects, specifically muscle-related, they actually are pretty well-tolerated and safe overall in the majority of patients. Um, their side effects can range from very um, subjective muscle weakness and soreness, which is the most common, uh, ranging to rhabdomyolysis, which is a lot more rare, but it is more severe. So um, statins do have powerful lipid-lowering capabilities, specifically the lowering of LDL. Um, listed here are the different statin intensity groups um, and their respective agent and doses. As you can see, high-intensity statins will decrease LDL by more than 50%, with moderate-intensity statins lowering by 30 to 49%. The absolute cardiovascular benefit of statins um, does depend on whatever the baseline LDL is. So that's why the goals are kind of centered more around that LDL lowering rather than targeting a specific number. So as great as statin therapy is, oftentimes it alone is insufficient to achieve LDL lowering goals. So this visual is also adapted from the guidelines, um, but it is more for patients who have um, already established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So this is, would be for secondary prevention of having another type of event. Um, knowing that this patient population is at an increased risk, an LDL goal of less than 70 is often targeted. And in order to achieve this goal, azetamibe is generally considered second-line therapy um, after high-intensity statin. And among this group of patients, there's also another subgroup, which is the very high-risk atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And in this patient population, um, you can go further as PCSK9 inhibitors could be considered if that LDL level still remains above 70. So what constitutes as very high risk? Um, it is defined as having a history of multiple major atherosclerotic events or having one major event plus um, having the presence of multiple high-risk conditions. So uh, going into further the definition of that, listed here are the major atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, which includes recent acute coronary syndrome occurring within the previous 12 months, a history of myocardial infarction, symptomatic peripheral arterial disease, and also history of ischemic stroke. The high-risk conditions include a diagnosis of heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, age 65 years or older, a diagnosis of diabetes, persistently elevated LDL greater than 100, and this would be despite therapy with a maximally tolerated statin plus azetamibe. Uh, chronic kidney disease, current smoker, and hypertension. Now, as you can see, these, com these conditions are actually relatively common, so it's not all that rare for patients to be considered at very high risk. So following statin therapy, azetamibe is a common lipid-lowering um, option, and it is a Neiman-PIK-C1-like-1 inhibitor. This, um, it works in the small intestine to inhibit the absorption of cholesterol, and this leads to a decreased delivery of cholesterol to the liver, reduction of hepatic cholesterol stores, and ultimately an increased clearance of cholesterol. 
This results in a reduction of LDL of about 20% and triglycerides about 10%. Um, it has a modest increase in HDL about 3%. Overall, azetamibe is well tolerated. The most common adverse effects are diarrhea, fatigue, and myalgias. Um, the risks of treatment are pretty minimal as well. The main warnings are going to be myopathy and rhabdomyolysis, and these are specifically when they're combined with stents. So the most notable trial looking at azetamibe as adjunct therapy to statins was the IMPROVE-IT trial from 2015. And this study included patients who had an acute coronary syndrome within the previous 10 days, and their baseline LDL was greater than 50. They were concurrently on moderate intensity statin, um, specifically simvastatin 40 milligrams daily. The results did find that azetamibe further reduced LDL by about 24%, and the primary endpoint was the composite of cardiovascular events. And after a median follow-up of about six years, um, the, it was found to have a relative risk reduction of about 7% and an absolute risk reduction of 2%. Um, as far as the safety endpoints, they did not find any significant differences in hepatotoxicity, rhabdomyolysis, myopathy, or gallbladder-related adverse effects. And although the IMPROVE-IT trial did uh, find cardiovascular benefit, the FDA did later deny that specific indication for reduction of cardiovascular events. Um, this was likely due to the lack of robust data, and there were also a couple of flaws in this study, um, specifically a high discontinuation rate and then also some missing data from the study. So um, for this reason, it's not specifically um, indicated for that. Um, however, it does still have that um, LDL lipid lowering effect. So a less commonly seen class of medications are the bile acid sequestrants, and this includes cholestyramine, cholestevolam, and cholestapol. These agents work by binding to bile acid, which forms a complex that gets excreted by the gastrointestinal tract. Um, they also prevent the reabsorption of cholesterol um, that occurs via enterohepatic recycling. Bile acid sequestrants decrease LDL by anywhere between 10 to 30%, and it, has, it can increase HDL about 5%. Unfortunately, these agents do also increase triglycerides. This effect is pretty modest. However, um, it is recommended to avoid these agents in patients who have um, hypertriglyceridemia. Um, generally, bile acid sequestrants are not very well tolerated, specifically causing gastrointestinal adverse effects, such as constipation, bloating, um, abdominal pain, and cramping. Um, so for this reason, they are a little bit limited in their clinical use. There are also a lot of drug-drug interactions as well, so um, oftentimes the administration needs to be separated by a certain amount of time um, just because the absorption of other medications gets altered. So the newest lipid-lowering therapy to the market is bempedoic acid. And this medication is the first in class with a mechanism of inhibiting adenosine triphosphate citrate lyase. 
ACL is a required step in the cholesterol biosynthesis in the liver. Um, so in comparison to other lipid-lowering therapy options, the mechanism would be most similar to statin therapy. By blocking ACL, um, subsequent steps of cholesterol synthesis are diminished, and bile or bempedoic acid has been found to reduce LDL by about 15%. Um, it also reduces HDL, which is a little more unique considering we, we tend to want the HDL to be higher. This agent was just approved earlier this year in February, um, indicated for heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia and established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, um, requiring further lowering of LDL. Um, I do think that this may be start to be seen more as it becomes more available. Um, it does have slightly more modest effect on LDL lowering, but it could potentially be used if patients are close to their goal. So the most notable um, trials that led to the approval of bempedoic acid are Clear Harmony and Clear Wisdom. These two trials did have pretty similar study designs and results. Uh, the study participants had atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and or a diagnosis of heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. Their baseline LDL had to be greater than 70, and they were on maximally tolerated statin therapy with or without azetamibe. It found that bempedoic acid further reduced LDL by about 15%. Um, there are no cardiovascular outcomes available at this time. Um, they're expected to come out in about 2022. Um, and as far as safety, the major adverse effects that were uh, established were hyperuricemia, gout, and decreased EGFR. So I definitely think it'll be interesting to see um, what comes about after those cardiovascular outcomes data is published. There are several other non-statin therapies that may be seen in practice for the treatment of dyslipidemia. Fibrate therapy, which includes phenofibrate and gemfibrozil, should be reserved specifically for hypertriglyceridemia. Um, a note with fibrate therapy is it should be used very cautiously with um, concurrent statin use. There has been increased incidences of myopathy and rhabdomyolysis. Similarly, omega-3 fatty acids should be really only reserved for patients who have the elevated triglycerides um, that you're trying to target. Niacin is a product that's available over-the-counter. Um, it does decrease LDL and increase HDL. Um, however, it's generally not recommended um, because due to the risks including hyperglycemia, hepatotoxicity, and rhabdomyolysis. Um, in addition, it's not very well tolerated. It often causes flushing and itching in patients. Um, and in addition, there are some products that claim to be flush-free over-the-counter, and these are not nearly as effective as the products that are going to cause the flushing. Red yeast rice is a naturally occurring um, HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor, and it has similar efficacy to like a low-intensity statin. Um, however, once again, they're not generally recommended due to different variabilities in its um, concentration. And also some of the contaminants have caused renal damage, so um, not recommended either. So we're going to take a couple of moments here to do a assess couple of assessment questions. 
So for secondary prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which medication is most appropriate to initiate as adjunct therapy to high-intensity statin when further LDL lowering is warranted? And just a reminder here, um, you can vote via your smartphone or tablet, and other options would be uh, desktop, and you can go to pollev.com slash mayorx, or you can text mayorx to 22333 um, to join. All right, excellent. Well, it looks like we have quite a few results coming in, and I'm glad you all were listening well, as the correct answer is A, azetamibe. Um, by the guidelines, it is considered to be second-line therapy after high-intensity statin. Um, B, cholestyramine is incorrect. Uh, this is a bile acid sequestrant, and generally this would be an alternative just due to the, it's not able to be well-tolerated and those drug-drug interactions. C, Thempidoic acid is the agent that was just recently approved, so um, no specific guidelines, recommendations, where it will be used in therapy, but that may um, change in the future as we learn more. Um, and further therapy would be warranted, um, as we know we're trying to reduce LDL to about 70 in the patients for secondary prevention. All right, and we have another assessment question here. So which of the following is an expected benefit of azetamibe? A, decrease the risk of statin-induced hepatotoxicity. B, decrease the risk of muscle-related side effects. C, lower LDL by approximately 20%. And D, lower LDL by approximately 50%. All right, looks like we have a decent amount of um, people ha that have answered by now. So um, the correct answer is C. Um, an expected benefit of azetamibe would be a further reduction in LDL of about 20%. Um, a and B are incorrect. Uh, the addition of azetamibe will not decrease any risk of statin-induced hepatotoxicity or statin-induced muscle-related side effects. Um, if anything, it may potentially increase that risk a little bit. Um, however, the Improve It trial did not find that to be significant. Um, and D is incorrect, as azetamibe has not been able to show that it has the capability to reduce LDL by 50%. However, there is a class of medications that has been found to further reduce LDL by about 50%, and that class of medications are the PCSK9 inhibitors. Now, this is going back to the graphic that I displayed earlier. Um, we can see that azetamibe is considered second line. Um, however, in that subgroup of patients in, with very high risk atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, um, PCSK9 inhibitors could be considered. So let's look a little bit closer at these agents. Alurocumab and evulocumab are monoclonal antibodies that inhibit proprotein convertase subtilisin kexin type 9, much easier called PCSK9 inhibitors. So PCSK9 normally binds to LDL receptors on hepatocyte surfaces. So when these agents inhibit the binding of PCSK9 to LDL receptors, there is an increased availability of receptors, which promotes the clearance of LDL from the body. This mechanism leads to a significant decrease in LDL, estimated at about 60%.
And these agents are given by subcutaneous injection, um, which are administered either every two weeks or every month. Overall, these agents are well tolerated. The main side effect is going to be those injection site reactions. Um, and this is pretty expected considering it is a monoclonal antibody. Um, at this point, the long-term safety is unknown about these agents. Odyssey was a large study that was performed which evaluated the safety and efficacy of alurocumab. Um, the study participants had an acute coronary syndrome within the past year and an LDL of greater than 70 at baseline. Patients had to be on maximally tolerated statin therapy with or without ezetimibe. Um, the results found that the addition of alurocumab further reduced LDL by about 60%, and the primary endpoint was a composite of cardiovascular events, and after a median follow-up of about 2.8 years, um, it was found to have a relative risk reduction of about 15% and an absolute risk reduction of 1.6%. As far as the safety, the only adverse effect that they did report to be significant was the injection site reactions. In a similarly designed study, Fourier evaluated the safety and efficacy of evulocumab, and study participants did have to have clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Um, their baseline LDL had to be greater than 70, and they were also on concurrent moderate to high-intensity statin with or without ezetimibe. So the patients who received evulocumab had a further reduction in LDL of about 60%, so very similar to Odyssey. And after a median follow-up of 2.2 years, there was a relative risk reduction in cardiovascular events of 15% and an absolute risk reduction of 1.5%. Um, once again, the safety, the main um, adverse effect was those injection site reactions. Uh, there were no significant differences in new onset diabetes or neurocognitive events, which were pre-specified safety endpoints. So PCSK9 inhibitors seem pretty great. They reduce LDL uh, very significantly. There's a low risk of side effects. Um, so why are these agents reserved only for very high risk and why are they considered third-line therapy? So cost is the biggest barrier um, for PCSK9 inhibitor use. Uh, when these agents first came to the market, they were about $14,000 a year. Um, now they have lowered down to about $6,000 per year, but as we know, that's still very expensive. Um, so there's been a couple different cost-effectiveness analyses done. Um, the first for evulocumab, this one used data from the four-year trial, and the analysis did conclude that the cost was considered acceptable um, when used specifically in those patients who were classified as very high risk. So essentially, they said um, its use would be acceptable if used um, based on the recommendation of the 2018 guidelines. Um, another cost-effectiveness analysis looking at alurocumab. Um, this used data from the Odyssey trial. Um, this one did conclude uh, that the cost could be considered of intermediate value um, with a better value when the LDL was greater than 100 at baseline and it was less economic value with LDL um, less than 100. 
So this specified a little bit further when it may be a better idea to use those PCSK9 inhibitors. So, although cost is arguably the biggest barrier to the clinical use of PCSK9 inhibitors, there are some questions in regards to its long-term safety. So, how low should LDL go? A question that gave this presentation its namesake. Um, as I mentioned previously, cholesterol is actually required for good health. Um, so there is some concern of lowering LDL too much, and PCSK9 inhibitors can certainly um, do that just considering how effective they are. Um, the biggest concerns of very low LDL are that it may possibly be associated with cancer, hemorrhagic stroke, depression and anxiety, or neurocognitive effects. Now, none of this was identified in either the Fourier or Odyssey trials. However, that was a relatively short um, follow-up. So the long-term safety of chronically low LDL is just really still unknown at this point. For this reason, the guidelines do recommend to de-escalate lipid-lowering therapy if there are multiple LDL um, levels that are less than 25. So now that we're all pros on PCSK9 inhibitors, um, we'll move to our last assessment question. What is the most appropriate indication for initiation of PCSK9 inhibitor therapy? A, primary prevention of ASCVD. B, clinical ASCVD. C, very high risk clinical ASCVD. Or D, presence of hypertriglyceridemia. All right, we'll go ahead and go through the um, answer here. So yes, you are all correct. Um, PCSK9 inhibitors should be reserved for patients with very high risk clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And this is really just going back to that visual I showed earlier. Um, it is not indicated for primary prevention. Um, clinical ASCVD, um, is, it is more appropriate to classify them as very high risk and um, there is no indication for hypertriglyceridemia. So far, I have focused on the addition of non-statin therapy. Um, so what about when patients cannot tolerate a statin? Um, so a general um, definition of statin intolerance is a history of adverse effects to at least two statins, with one of those being at the lowest effective dose. Um, true statin intolerance is relatively rare. It's an estimated um, incidence of about less than 5%. However, this comes up what feels like all the time in clinical practice. Um, present guidelines do actually prefer the term statin-associated side effects rather than intolerance because the majority of patients will be able to tolerate a re-challenge. There is also a pharmacogenomic consideration with statin-induced myopathy, specifically with simvastatin. So SLC-01B1 is a drug transporter that helps the body get rid of certain medications, including statins, through the liver. In patients who are um, found to have decreased function of LDL, or sorry, decreased function of SLC-01B1, Apologies here, I had a little technical difficulty. So um, in patients who are found to have decreased function of SLC-01B1, there is a reduced risk of drug, there's a risk of reduced drug clearance, less clearing of the drug 
leads to increased levels of simvastatin, ultimately putting those patients at a higher risk of developing myopathy. So the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium guidelines do recommend that patients with intermediate to low function of SLC01B1 um, should be prescribed a lower dose of simvastatin or consider an alternative regimen. Um, they also recommend that creatinine kinase could be um, considered for routine surveillance. Um, the most evidence at this time is specifically for simvastatin and less so for other statins. So as I mentioned before, a large majority of patients will be able to tolerate a rechallenge, and this would be for patients who have a history of non-severe side effects, such as that subjective muscle weakness or soreness. Um, it is recommended to discontinue the statin until symptoms resolve, and you can either retrial the same statin at a lower dose with intentions to gradually increase that dose, or choose an alternative statin. Um, hydrophilic statins, such as rasuvastatin and pravastatin, may be better tolerated um, as there may be less intrinsic muscle toxicity. However, rechallenging of statin therapy is not recommended for patients who have a history of severe statin-associated side effects. So this would include the main warnings, which are hepatotoxicity, rhabdomyolysis, and immune-mediated necrotizing myopathy. Um, generally, uh, we do not uh, check a routine creatinine kinase or transaminase levels. However, in patients who have symptoms suggesting myopathy, it would be recommended to check a creatinine kinase. And in patients that have symptoms suggesting hepatotoxicity, you may want to consider checking that, those liver function tests, total bilirubin, and alkaline phosphatase. In these situations, it is recommended to discontinue the statin altogether and consider an alternative non-statin therapy. So there have been a couple notable trials looking at azetamide versus the PCSK9 inhibitors in statin-intolerant patients. Um, the GOSS-3 trial looked at evulocumab versus azetamide with the Odyssey alternative looking at alurocumab versus azetamide. Um, not all that surprising results here. Uh, the lipid-lowering effect of azetamide was around 15% with the PCSK9 inhibitors reducing LDL by about 50%. As far as the muscle-related side effects, um, azetamide did tend to have slightly higher incidences of those muscle-related side effects in comparison to the PCSK9 inhibitors. Um, at this time, there's no cardiovascular benefit out there for patients who are not already on a statin, so this would be a complete alternative. And lastly here, the CLEAR Serenity was a study that looked at bempedoic acid in patients with a history of statin-intolerant patients. This was compared to placebo. Um, it was found that bempedoic acid lowered LDL by about 20%, um, and there was really no significant differences in those muscle-related side effects. So in conclusion, um, statins are first-line therapy for treatment of dyslipidemia, and that individual risk assessment is essential when you're determining those patient-specific goals. Oftentimes, to achieve those goals, um, non-statin therapy may be necessary. And additionally, if patients have a history of severe statin-associated side effects. In general, azetamide is considered second-line therapy with PCSK9 inhibitors as third-line therapy, specifically for patients with clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease at very high risk. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.